The goal of this breakfast is to raise, raise awareness of the ministries involved in standing in life together and standing together for life, obviously. And that's why you're here, that's why you're rubbing elbows with the person next to you. The background for the Council of Life, many of you may know this, but is to empower women, men, and you to make a difference in their choices. The Council is motivated by its passion for life. It begins in the womb with Christ-like love and responsive compassion. That's what this Council does. That's what this council teaches. It's committed to raising public awareness for this significant issue. The Council for Life began 16 years ago by Ann Carruth. Ann, are you here? Raise your stand up, Ann, so everybody can see you. Thank you so much. And 11 other women who had a heart for the Lord, our city, and for the sanctity of life. There's two fundraising events every year that the Council of Life puts on. The annual luncheon to support uh, local frontline agencies and the Run for Life that supports uh, adoption. To date, over $7 million have been raised and given to agencies that share the mission for Council for Life. $7 million. Let's give God thanks for that. The Council for Life also hosts many other educational opportunities. Uh, for the youth and for people of all ages throughout the year. An active group of young professionals under the age of 35 known as Young Leaders for Life. Young Leaders for Life hold together regular events as part of the council's educational platform. There's two upcoming educational opportunities. One is Life Lessons Box Lunch, Wednesday, January 24th at the Museum of Biblical Art located across from North Park. The other is a men's breakfast on Monday, March 6th at the Dallas Country Club. Educational opportunities. Hope that you all can be there for that. We have three powerful speakers this morning. I'm going to introduce all three of them at once so that then they'll just come up and speak one right after the other as you continue to enjoy your, your meal. I've had a chance to meet all three. Glad for that. First is Todd Wagner. Many of you know Todd. He and a small group of friends established Watermark Community Church back in November of 1999. He was born out of a desire to connect people with the unchurched, the de church, the overchurched, the underchurched, the overchurched, all the kind of different <laughs> people of different backgrounds, reaching them for Jesus Christ. And to reach the uh, to reach them in all kinds of different ways. As senior pastor, uh, an elder at Watermark. We all know that uh, Watermark Church has grown significantly over the years. It's a tremendous ministry of young adults called the Front Porch. And um, if you are ever voted out of your job, apparently his is one of the top two places to work in the city of Dallas. So if you need a job, talk to Todd. It's a great place to work, apparently. <laughs> Todd, congratulations for that. He's published a book called Come and See Everything You Ever Wanted in the One Place You Would Never Look. Uh, Todd, has that been released already, that book? Yes, sir. It has been released, my notes say, in October 2017. Um, he has been a keynote speaker at national and international leadership conferences and a guest contributor to the Dallas Morning News and other media outlets. He has a weekly video podcast called Real Truth Real Quick, reaches tens of thousands of people in the Dallas area. Todd and his wife, Alex, along they have six children, one grandchild, love to laugh, 
serve together, live together here in Dallas, Texas. The next speaker will be, uh, at the top, will be Dr. Tony Evans. He also probably needs no introduction. The founder and senior pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship. Founder and president of the Urban Alternative. Former chaplain of the NFL's Dallas Cowboys. Uh, and a present chaplain of the Dallas Mavericks. He has a radio broadcast called The Alternative with Dr. Tony Evans. can be heard over 1,200 U.S. radio outlets daily and more in more than 130 countries. He launched, Dr. Evans launched the Tony Evans Training Center in 2017, an online learning platform providing quality seminary-style courses for a fraction of the cost to any person in any place. The goal is to increase what we all know needs to be increased, biblical literacy. Not only in lay people, but also in those Christian leaders who kind of afford to find the time for formal ongoing education. And uh, our keynote speaker this morning, of course, who was here last year, Roland Warren. Roland Warren was appointed CareNet CEO in October 2012. Prior to his time at CareNet, Roland served as president of the National Fatherhood Initiative where he was dedicated to the mission of improving the well-being of children by increasing the proportion of children that are raised and involved responsibly with committed fathers. At CareNet, Rolla is passionate about helping the, them accomplish the vision, which is to create a culture where women and men face with pregnancy decisions are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and empowered to help their children choose life for the unborn children and abundant life for the families. His national appearances are, as such, Oprah Winfrey Show, Today Show, CNN, C-SPAN, Dateline, NBC, Fox News Channel, Black Entertainment Television. He has been interviewed by major radio and newspaper outlets such as The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Washington Post, O Magazine, Ebony, Sports Illustrated, Christianity Today, Essence, The Tavis Smiley Show, Janet Parsons America. He also has written a monthly column called Pop Culture for Washington Times. He's the author of Bad Dads of the Bible. Bad Dads of the Bible. There are lots of them apparently. Because the whole book written on them. I've got the book right here. And he gets to sign it for you after uh, after our time this morning. He's an alumnus of Princeton University, brings to care that almost two decades of experience in the business world, including positions at IBM, PepsiCo, and Goldman Sachs and more than a decade of experience in the nonprofit world. MBA from Warren School uh, in the University of Pennsylvania. He is married to Dr. Yvette Loper Warren, uh, Lopez Warren and his two sons, Jamie, a graduate of Harvard, and Justin, a graduate of the University of North Carolina and Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Let's begin by welcoming our first speaker, Todd Wagner. Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, good morning. It is a privilege. I, they uh, have asked me to speak about practical strategies for caring for um, abortion-minded individuals. And um, what I really want to talk about, which is in the midst of this, is, is you know, strategies are kind of a formal uh, process that we put in place to accomplish goals. And I want to just tell you, I'm not going to really talk about strategies because I don't think that's the best strategy is to have a good strategy. I think the best strategy is to have a good culture. You guys know Peter Drucker, and Peter Drucker, who's a, a leadership guru, is the guy who said, ultimately, that you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. The reason that we have um, what we have in our country, uh, which is just an incredible 
uh, lack of understanding of the value of life is because we have a culture that's lost its value of life. And so you might say, okay, well, Todd, what's the strategy to redeem that culture and get it back? I love to speak on this topic because it gives us great hope. I, I was asked um, by my friend Daryl uh, Bach and uh, others at Dallas Seminary to speak to a luncheon of a bunch of the men that are um, and women that are around supporting uh, our friends at Dallas Seminary. And they said, Todd, we want you to speak on the greatest threat to the future of our country. And uh, I said, done, I'm ready. And when I got up there to speak, I, I, I said, hey, I'm going to tell you today, this is really good news. What I think the greatest threat to our country is, is really great news for us because I, I don't think it's um, Planned Parenthood. And so we don't have to figure out how to infiltrate Planned Parenthood and, um, and have them uh, stop what they're doing or change what they're doing. I don't think uh, the greatest evil in our country today is uh, our radical uh, LGBTQ community that's trying to redefine marriage and uh, create kind of a fluid sexuality that is out there. Uh, so we don't have to necessarily uh, get inside their organizations and change them. I, I think, and I could go on and on with all kind of the, the favorite targets, if you will, of, of evil from the evangelical right perspective, a name I'm not really fond of. But um, I said, I think the greatest evil in America is the dead and feckless church. It's a church that doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It doesn't um, exist as salt and light. And so when you have that, which is supposed to provide, uh, you know, prevent decay and uh, provide direction, not doing what it should do, why are we surprised that we see decadence all around us and darkness overcoming the land? The great news about the church being the problem with our country is that we don't have to convince anybody to listen to us to fix it. We just got to start to listen to the God who just said, hey, I'm going to let you be the hope of the world. You are right now the visible image of what is today the invisible Jesus Christ. In the same way that Jesus was the visible image of the invisible God, he said, hey, I'm going to let you stay here. My spirit's going to dwell in you and you're going to be my people, my body, that which people see. You're going to be my hands and feet. And uh, as we begin to embody what Christ has us embody, it's going to change the world that we live in. I love the story. You guys have heard this um, maybe a long time ago. Tony Campola. This, this is a story I heard right when I first trusted Christ, way back decades ago, about um, a time he was speaking in Hawaii. And uh, as he was speaking uh, in Hawaii, he uh, was done, and, and, and if you know anything about Tony Campola, he's a very um, social person, sociological professor at Penn at one point, and he, and he happens to like people. He's an unusual professor. <laughs> and so he was hanging around and engaging with folks. It was late, and so on his way back to his hotel, he stopped at a diner. It was three in the morning when he walked in there, and he was the only one in there, and all of a sudden, uh, a bunch of working gals came walking in. Um, prostitutes. And kind of filled in the diner around. It was clear that they come there every night, and as he was sitting there eating by himself in a diner filled with prostitutes, uh, he heard one of the gals say to another, hey, tomorrow's my birthday. And the other girl said, why do you think we care? And, and, uh, and, and the girl said, I, I don't think you care. No one's ever cared my entire life. I was just saying something. Why do you got to be so mean? And she got up and she walked out. And a few little minutes later, everybody kind of cleared out. And so Campola went to the diner again. These little girls come in here every night. Are they here every night? Are they always here? And he said, yeah, they come in here Pretty much like clockwork, right about now when they're done kind of working the streets and making their money. And he said, hey, I'll tell you what, I wanna, I wanna, I'm going to throw a birthday party tomorrow for her. 
I'll get the balloons, I'll get the crepe paper, I'll, I'll make this thing look as best I can. And so I'll pay you, will you bake a cake? And the wife said, no, 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 we'll just bake the cake. That's a great idea. And so the next night he got to about two o'clock in the morning and uh, set the place all up and, and word kind of got out uh, throughout the day uh, with folks that uh, were within the community that, that, that knew some of these gals. And the place that morning was especially filled uh, some of the other girls got there a little earlier, and when this gal walks in, everybody stood up and screamed and said, Happy birthday, and um, everybody was all excited, and uh, this girl got the cake and came out, and they kind of said, Hey, would you stop crying and just you know cut the cake so we can all eat it? And she just said, Hey, do you mind if I don't cut the cake? Do you mind if I just take this home real quick? I, 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 I've never had a birthday cake my entire life. And I, I'd like to say that. And so she walked out, and everybody kind of looked around and thought, well, gosh, that's kind of ruins the party. The guy we were throwing the party for is gone. And so uh, Tony was sitting there, and he didn't know what to do, so he said, let's pray. And everybody kind of looked at him, and, and then he just started praying about God's kindness and love, the way he cares for every one of us individually. Prayed for the gals that were in the room that they would know that somebody cares about them. And as, and as soon as he got done, the guy goes, hey, man, you didn't tell me you were a pastor. He goes, I'm not a pastor. He goes, I'm just somebody that knows that Jesus loves people. He goes, well, who are you? He goes, uh, he goes well, I happen to be a professor. He goes, he goes, I am a part of a church. He goes, well, what kind of church do you go to? And he says, I go to the kind of church at those birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 in the morning. And the guy said, you know what? If there was a church like that, that's the church I'd like to go to. And the truth is, it's the church that prostitutes would like to go to. And I heard that story, and I always thought, you know what, if I ever am a part of a local community of Christ followers, which if you're a believer, you should be, right? That's an easy point to sell to this crowd. Um, I always thought that's what I want to do. I don't want to run uh, an average weekly meeting for a bunch of bored adults. I don't want to cut a deal with people. I, I don't want to say, hey, will you just come here and validate me by your presence? And, uh, and uh, give me enough money that I can keep the lights on and uh, tell your friends about it so I, I maybe get more and more folks to talk about how many people listen to me every week. I don't want to put on a show every week that you come here and validate me with your presence and I'm not going to tell you that I'm not going to ask too much of you so that you don't get um, convicted and, and really called to do something. And um, I think this is what happens in most churches. Pastors um, don't want to ask too much of people because they don't want to drive them away. People think that all they need to do is just show up and they, they kind of cut a deal. They tell each other, that's all God wants of you to do. You make me feel good about me sitting out there, I'll make you feel good because I sit out there and we'll just kind of get along. And that, my friends, how you get a dead church. That is not pure and undefiled religion. That doesn't make abortion-minded women believe that there's somebody that cares about them because they're spending their life trying to find somebody who loves them. There's got to be a culture. Uh, you know, my friend Rollin wrote an article a long time ago um, about uh, what God did with the very first most famous unwanted pregnancy that we see. It's the story of Mary, obviously. And what did God do when he gave Mary an unwanted, unexpected pregnancy? And the answer is he, he gave her a family. He gave her Joseph. He gave her a man to walk alongside her and say, I love you. I'm not going to send you away. I'm not ashamed of this thing. It doesn't make sense to me that that, that, that's disruptive in my life and yours. I'm going to be here and love you as God would have me do. And when you start to do that and create a culture like that, you've got a, a, a scared little girl who doesn't even know how to explain what she's in the middle of that, that begins to, 
um, bring forward the gift that God gave her. Now, obviously, the child that God put inside Mary is very different in its origin and in the way that most unintended pregnancies, all unintended pregnancies are coming into women today. But you got to ask yourself, how am I doing at loving the least of these? You've got to develop a culture. Our strategy should be we have a culture where people know that's the church you go to. One of the things that we're doing at Watermark right now is that we're trying to develop a culture that... Um, that people know that's where you go when you're hurting in general. I think that's what each one of us needs to do. We don't need to try and figure out what we do to get people to come. We don't want to get a bunch of people that are uh, not doers of the word, who are deluded because they come to church but aren't salt and light and loving people that are in their midst. You've got to figure out, hey, what am I going to do to create a culture where I'm going to love the least of these? One of the things I'm excited about today, what I really want to do is just set this up because you've got two guys coming after me that are trying to do that. You know, th this is, let me tell you something great. Would you guys be excited if we could cut abortion in half in our country? That's a good way to start, right? In order to get rid of all of it, you got to get rid of half of it. Well, um, if you've been around the abortion conversation <laughs> long, you know, at the Guttmacher uh, Institute, every year they, they try and just explain basically who's having an abortion. Do you know that 40% of the abortions that happen in our country happen to people who have no religious affiliation? Why is that good news? Because that means 60% of them are already listening to us. 60% of them are sitting in our pews or have relationships or would call themselves, watch this, 25% Catholic, 17% uh, mainline Protestant, 13% evangelical. If just people who already knew us and that we are people who are supposed to be known not by our doctrinal amens, but by our practical doing, know that we love them even when an unintended pregnancy comes along, if we can create a family for them and come around them, you guys know 60% of all abortions happen to women in their 20s. That means you've got to have a vibrant young adult ministry. You've got to have a renown that this is the place you go when you're broken, just like Jesus. We have a cultural problem, not out there, but right here. And so I'm really grateful for Tony because I get to bring him up now. Tony isn't, um, you know, you guys may know, um, it's 30% uh, of all abortions happen African Americans. And so Tony is um, in the middle of developing Tony Evans Training Center where he's going to disciple young women so that uh, they, and young men, so that they aren't going to be. Uh, doing the things that lead to an unintended pregnancy. It's going to rebuild the family and their association with one another in the church. Rollin has written a curriculum for you that he's going to talk about. If he doesn't, I should tell you about it called Making Life Disciples, where you can create disciples and have a culture where people walk with Jesus and not go to your church. We have great, great opportunity. Because we don't need to change Planned Parenthood. We can cut abortion in half if we just change ourselves. And so what a, what a privilege to be with you guys. This is a I'm here to encourage you and tell you to keep going, to keep not having strategies, but culture. Strategies are formal plans to get somewhere. Strategies say this is what we're going to do. Culture is this is who we are. And the culture is created by getting people who walk with him. We're disciples of Jesus. Teach them to walk with him. And you watch abortion go down. Tony? Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Todd. In my most recent book, it's called The Kingdom Disciples. 
heaven's representatives on earth. I inaugurate it with the well-known event, the great event of the 20th century on April 14, 1912, when the Titanic sank. 1,500 lives were lost when that ship went under, and we are well aware of the fact that it encountered an iceberg on its maiden voyage. But there was another reason that the ship went down that is not as popularly known, but it was the initial cause of a great disaster of the loss of life. It had to do with the missing key. David, David Blair was the second officer assigned to the Titanic. On the day before its launch from Southampton, England, it, uh, he was reassigned. David Blair had with him the key to the crow's nest locker. Inside the crow's nest locker was the binoculars that the gentleman would use up in the crow's nest to look out to make sure that as the ship moved along there were no conflicts in the water. But David Blair took the key with him, unmistakably, and so the key was not available to unlock the locker to get the monoculars so that the gentleman in the crow's nest only used his human sight. And he didn't see on that foggy evening, didn't see the iceberg. So there was a missing key. And the absence of that key led to a disaster with the loss of life. It is my contention when it comes to this issue of abortion and pregnancy. There are a lot of programs, but there's a missing key. At my core, I am an ecclesiologist, theologically, a churchman. And it is my contention that the primary reason why we have the crisis that we have on this issue and many others, as has been articulated by Todd, is the missing key of discipleship. Disciples ought to be visible, verbal followers and representatives of Jesus Christ, bringing heaven's perspectives to earth's realities. It is the job of the church, the primary job of the church, to create disciples. We've done a great job of creating church members, but not a great job of having full-time disciples, we've settled for part-time Christians. And as a result of that, the influence and impact that God's people are to have in the world goes lacking. I mean, help me, how can we have all these churches on all these corners with all these members and all these people and all these programs and all these leaders and all these facilities and all these strategies and simultaneously have all this mess? There's a dead monkey on the line somewhere. And as politically involved as the cycles of politics have made us, God is not going to skip the church house to fix the White House. God has a kingdom profile that is dependent upon the development of disciples. And so in our church and in our national ministry, 
the passion to produce disciples who are both verbal and visible in their representation of and replication of the character and conduct and the attitudes and actions of Jesus Christ. That is our goal. When Jesus Christ left his last official gathering with all of his disciples, he told them that this is what I want you to do. And while discipleship is often spoken of as individually developing Christians, obviously that must happen, when it is spoken of by Jesus Christ, it's spoken of much bigger than that. He says, I want you to disciple the nations. I don't just want you to disciple individuals in the nation. I want you to disciple the nations. So there should be a national impact on the presence of God's people in the culture. While we want to lead individuals to Christ and have individuals grow in their faith, we also want to affect systems that those individuals are a part of that make up the ethnos, the, the nations. And we are facing a national crisis on a lot of issues today. But the reason why, again, as was articulated by Todd, is because God can't find disciples. He can find crowds. He can find weekly gatherings for an hour and 15 minutes. Well, that's if you're white. Two hours if you're black. Uh, you, can, you, can, you get a crowd. But to have people who represent him and therefore transform the environment or the culture. No, that's a different story. For the last five years of Tom Landry's uh, leadership of the Cowboys, uh, I was the chaplain. A number of years ago, I was asked to come back and uh, take up that role again, which I did, and then I turned it over to my son, Jonathan, after his brief NFL career. He uh, took over that role and now is the chaplain of the Cowboys. And when you watch the Cowboys play or whoever your favorite team happens to be, you will always see three teams take the field. There will be a home team and there will be a visiting team, which means there's going to be a clash. It's going to be a three-hour clash because nothing you say or do will ever make those two teams get along. They have two different goals in mind. One is headed toward a goal this way, the other is headed toward a goal that way, which means there's going to be a clash. We live in a society of clash, racial clash, economic clash, social clash, gender clash, political clash, and all the strategies in the world don't make those teams get along. But it is in the midst of that conflict that a third team is introduced to the field. Team of officials. Those are seven officials who are on the field, but they're not of the field. They're in the middle of the mess, but they're not part of the mess because they come from another kingdom. 345 Park Avenue is the NFL offices. Those offices assign seven people to every NFL game. Their job is to represent the interests of the NFL on the field of play. Each one of those officials have been handed a book. And that book is to govern all decisions made on the field of play. 
regardless of the personal preferences of the officials, their job is to submit to the book that was written, not to the arguments of the teams on the field. The Church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be God's officiating crew, heaven's representatives on earth. A number of years ago, there was an official strike. They put in replacement officials. Chaos broke out because they didn't know the book, and didn't know how to make the calls. We have not made good calls, and therefore the culture continues to be in chaos. The reason why I got involved with this project of this discipleship emphasis for those who are, are pregnant and not married is because what they need is discipleship. We need to save the whole life. We need a whole life agenda, not a term agenda. So that not only do we save a mother and a baby in time, but we take care of their eternal destiny as well. So discipleship saves life twice and then allows it to be replicated through their influence as well. Sylvia is my executive assistant now for 27 years. She was raped and she got pregnant. She was going to have an abortion, but she came to Christ. She did have an abortion. She grew her child up in our church. He grew up through our youth ministry. And now Curtis oversees the urban outreach for Campus Crusade National. Mm -hmm. Rape victim who saves her child, who got saved, who became a disciple, her now son, now wins people of Christ across America. Wow. See, when discipleship is in its right place, impact wow. is made even in a culture in conflict. Well, thank you everyone for coming. Thank you uh, to Pastor Wagner and also uh, to Dr. Evans and Council for Life. Just amazing work uh, that you do every day. As you heard, I'm Ron Warren. I'm with uh, with Karen. And I want to just uh, uh, first just thank you and honor you for, for being here today. Uh, I have just a tremendous uh, respect for pastors and what pastors do. Amazing, uh, God-honoring work that you do. Uh, and, and I'm hopeful that... Uh, that this will give you a perspective around the life issue, but I'm going to talk a little about the life issue that uh, will animate you in a way that maybe you haven't been animated in years around around this issue. You know, I've been with Karen for about five years. Uh, I love the work that God's kind of put before me, uh, and to be working on an issue that I care so deeply about. And, you know, we're supposed to be here talking about the abortion issue and the life issue, but I wanted to start off with a question, and Todd stole a little bit of the thunder, because now... You guys probably know the answer, and the answer to that question, uh, the question I really wanted to start with is, you know, what was the best known unplanned pregnancy in history, right? It's the birth of Christ, right? And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, kind of piggybacking on what Todd said a bit there, you know, from Mary's perspective, this was unplanned. God knew, but Mary didn't. And she had hopes and dreams for her life that did not include a child at this time in this way, right? So she has this pregnancy, and there's all this uncertainty around the pregnancy. I mean, what am I going to say to my family? What am I going to tell my parents? What's my community going to say? How am I going to take care of this child? And what about Joseph? And what about Joseph? And yet, despite all the uncertainty, she focused on a certainty. That there was a life growing inside of her. And she focused on that. 
this light that was growing inside of her. And so when the angel came to her, she said, what? Let it be unto me as you have said. And she chose life. And you know, one of the first things that God showed me when I came to Karenet, that our work really is essentially about encouraging women to ascribe to themselves the virtue and the character of Mary, despite the uncertainty, to tap into their inner Mary, and to say, as Mary did, let it be unto me, as you have said, and to choose life. But here's the thing. What did God do to make sure that Mary's unplanned pregnancy wasn't a crisis pregnancy? And what did he do? Well, he sent an angel to Joseph. And you think about Joseph. I mean, Joseph had a very similar dilemma as any abortion-minded man. He had hopes and dreams for his life, his life with Mary. They did not include a child at this time and in this way. And actually, he was going to put her away quietly. You see, back then, you couldn't put the baby away, so you put the woman and the baby away. And what was that? It was basically a cultural abortion. And the angel comes to him and says, no, 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 no. There's, there's something else you should do here. I need you to be a husband to her and a father to the child growing inside of her. Husband to her and father to the child growing inside of her. And Joseph, too, said what? Let it be unto me as you have said. And he chose life, too. And, and, and the real point here is that the holy family is holy family. It was holy family. And, you know, from my perspective, why is that? Well, it's because God doesn't just want children to have life. He wants them to have abundant life. But, but you've got to start asking yourself the question, what does abundant life look like to a baby? You see, a doctor can deliver a baby. You know, there's an abortion doctor, Kermit Gosnell. Some of you may have heard of him. Philadelphia, he delivered children. He killed them. That's life. But it's not abundant life as God designed. Or the doctor can deliver a baby and hand it to a single mom. Now, we know that this is absolutely a life-affirming act. I mean, I grew up in a single mother home. I know how courageous that is when someone does that. And I, but I also know how difficult it is for mothers and children. I lived it. I lived it. Or that doctor can deliver that baby and hand it to a mother and father, united in marriage, loving each other, loving their child, and ideally loving God. And, and, and we know that that is abundant life. I mean, that, that's the high idea that we should be solving for. And how do we know that? Well, because that's what happened with Jesus. Do you ever think about the fact that Jesus could have come into the world via a single mother? I mean, Scripture said he was going to be born of a virgin, but it didn't say a married virgin. But that would have accomplished God's purpose, but it would have violated a principle, a high idea, a design. And Jesus came into the world consistent with God's design, consistent. With God, with a high idea. And you know, the way I started to talk about that perspective is really, it's a nativity narrative. We have this nativity narrative, this, this story of Mary and Joseph and God's design, how Jesus came into the world. It's a nativity narrative. It, it's, it's the most amazing true story that's ever been told. And it's instructive for us Christians as we address the abortion issue in families and communities and yes, in the church. This is a story it's not just a pro-life story. In my view, it's a pro-abundant life story. And I believe strongly that we're called not just to be pro-life, but to be pro-abundant life is what we're called to be. But see, but we can't be pro-abundant life if we're not talking about family, if we're not talking about fatherhood, motherhood, if we're not talking about marriage and God's design for those institutions. And let me just make an extra point here about marriage. It's not just about whether she marries that guy or he marries that woman. We know that from all the social science data, the kids do better 
across every psychological, social, economic, and educational measurement of child well-being when they're raised by their two married parents. We know that, but we know that's not always the case. The issue here, really, is that the mind must be transformed. See, so that they relink sex, motherhood, fatherhood, and marriage consistent with God's design. Because if they don't, then what happens is they end up being repeat clients. Mm. They end up being repeat clients. And their children end up being future clients. And that's not the business we're in. See, we're, we're not called to be in a transactional business. This mm. must be transformational mm. in terms of what we're doing as God, God designed. See, our scientists can't say, thank you, come again. Thank you, come again. No, our society, thank you, don't come again. Not to be served, but to be service to others. See, that's Planned Parenthood sign. Their sign says, thank you, come again. Because that's a consumer transaction. Right? It's a consumer transaction, not a covenant relationship, which is what we're called to help folks who are facing a pregnancy decision come to the reality of. But sadly, in my view, we've, we've really lost this nativity narrative in our response to abortion. And, and this has a lot to do, in my view, because over the last 40 years or so, we've let the other side frame the issue. So just a little bit of history here. Bear with me. You know, when the issue came to the public square in 1973, it was brought into the public square by the other side, who basically said it's about a woman and a question mark. And they started defining the question mark. It's about the woman and the product of conception, and the woman and choice, and the woman and... Something else. It's always about something and a question mark moving from something that's immutable, a fact, a certainty in terms of God's design, to something that's flexible situation. And we respond and say, no, no, it's about the baby. It's about the baby. Which, of course, it is to some degree. Absolutely, no question about that. But we got attacked by the other side. I said, you don't care about women. You just care about saving babies. Just notches on your belt. That's all you're trying to do. We said, no, 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 no. We care about women, too. Love them both. Love them both, love them both. And basically, that's the narrative that you hear out in the public square. That, that is our narrative. You've got two sides. One side saying it's a woman and a question mark, and the other side is saying it's about the woman and the baby. But there's a problem with that. Because both of those perspectives, the pro-life and the pro-choice perspective, as it's framed in the public square, exclude fathers. And exclude God's design for the family. And, and I believe strongly that this is the wrong paradigm. That we're responding in a way that's not consistent with the biblical narrative, that's not consistent with that nativity narrative. It's not consistent with that. And especially when you think about the fact that when we, when we surveyed women who had had abortions, what we found was that when we asked them who was the most influential in your decision to abort, guess who it was? Far and away was the father of the child. Far and away. More than everybody else that we're, we're trying to engage, abortion providers, doctors, father of the child. That's what she says. And we know that to be true if we just think about it a little bit. You know, I had a reporter once asked me, said, is caring at more for the woman or more for the baby? I said, that's a great question. It's like asking me, am I more for breathing in or for breathing out? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they're both essential to life. So I reject that entire paradigm. And I want to submit to you a new paradigm, that's an old paradigm, that we shouldn't reject abortion just because it's an assault on the sanctity of life, but but also because it's an assault on the sanctity of marriage and family as God designed. Father and mothers united in marriage, loving each other and loving their children. Indeed, this pernicious law is a direct assault on the life-giving nativity narrative God has given us. You see, when abortion was legalized, two things happened. And one we never really talked about. But in my view, in many ways, it was the most significant thing. And it was something that had never happened before. 
And the thing was that we actually delinked fatherhood and motherhood with women. See, the law says that a woman becomes a mother at conception and a man becomes father at birth. Now let that settle in. A woman becomes a mother at conception and the man becomes a father at birth. So we, we, we delinked fatherhood and motherhood in the womb. And as a result, we delinked wifehood and husbandhood in the womb. Because in God's economy, you're not supposed to be a mother unless you're a wife. And you're not supposed to be a father unless you're a husband. And so the law did rip that apart. Rip that apart. And that's had an enormous impact on our culture. You see, our God is a God of unity. And he united these sacred institutions together in the womb. And the baby is a living reflection of this reality. And when God is joined together, no one should pull apart. Moreover, fatherhood is a more fragile cultural and social institution than motherhood. And now we've stripped it from its historical connection in the wombs, and the effects have been profound. And now we struggle mightily, but often unsuccessfully, to try to reconnect that father after birth. So we shouldn't just object to abortion because it's an assault on the sanctity of life. We should object to abortion because God has a design, has a high idea. And we need to articulate that high idea. Another way to kind of think about this is just practically in terms of support needed by mothers and children. Physical, emotional, and spiritual support. The kind of support that they need. Right? And so this chart here basically talks about that support. That you know, you've got time that goes on from conception on. And, and then you have the work that pregnancy centers do. Amazing work. That little teal over there from conception to birth. And maybe a little bit further. But what's the issue? See, the support that a pregnancy center can provide doesn't change over time. So if you come in with a 10-year-old, unless they wear diapers, there's not much we can do for you. <laughs> so the real issue here is this missing support. See, to the degree that when we can't figure out how she's going to solve that, she's much more likely to have an abortion. Hmm. I'm a business guy. I just look at things that way. That's the chart. That's the issue that we're facing. That's the issue that we're facing. And, and so we've got to solve for that missing support. So what we have in the pregnancy center, loving her up and saying all the support she has from conception to birth, folk on the other side reminding her all the support she won't have after that point. Now, God is wise. He has a design. He has a design to make sure that women have women and children have the support that they need. What is it? Husbands and fathers. And that's why 86% of the women that have abortions are unmarried. So to talk about the abortion issue and not talk about marriage is just bad business. But just think about that. So linking the, the sanctity of marriage and family as God designed to the sanctity of life, you, you have to do that if you want to respond. And, and if you think about going back to the, the narrative of Mary and Joseph, that's exactly what happened. What was the first thing that the angel said to Joseph? Do not be afraid to take Mary as your what? Boo, wifey, shorty, <laughs> baby mama. No, wife. Then he told him who Jesus was. So he first affirmed the sanctity of marriage and family as God designed. Then he affirmed the sanctity of life. And as you know, order matters. There are ten commandments, but there's a first one. Hmm. We've lost that narrative. That's the nativity narrative that we've lost. So we're going to have to change and have a much more comprehensive way of looking at this issue. There needs to be a paradigm shift. And we also need to change how the church is thinking about this issue. See, the church has a role to play here that is a significant role. And in my view, the lead role. 
And I, and I tell folks, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with a national organization that works on this issue. But, but I want to tell you, pastors, that this is a John the Baptist moment for us. We must decrease. You must increase. We must decrease. You must increase. We need you to lead. You have to lead on this issue. You know, Todd talked about some of this. 54% of the women that have abortions, according to Guttmacher's data, profess to be either Catholic or Protestant. I mean, this is a big Christian issue. And, you know, when we did our own survey, um, the one where we, we found that the, the, the father was the most influential, we also asked women the question about church attendance. And what we found was that nearly four out of ten were attending church at the time of their first abortion, at least monthly. Most of them more than monthly. And those are the Christians. You talk to Gallup or, you know, Barnard or anybody. Those are the real Christians that are having abortions. Now, let me do some math for you. Roughly a million abortions a year. Just use the 40% number, which is a lower number. 40% of a million is 400,000. The average abortion is $500. 400,000 times 500 is 200 million. So every year, year after year after year after year, Christians are funding the abortion injury industry to the tune of $200 million. Mm. See, we got to overturn Roe v. Wade in our own churches and in our own pews. Wow. See, this is the log in our eye versus the speck in the culture's eye. Mm. And, and for me, I, I get excited about that because we know where we are. We don't, we don't have to worry the media or anybody. We know where we are. How about this? How about Christians just stop having abortions? Mm. How about that? And what a witness and a testimony that would give us in the broader square. But in order for that to happen, Pastors must lead. Not Karen, not whatever other organization. Pastors must lead. Pastors must lead. Pastors must lead. Now, lest you think I'm being too harsh on women in the church that have abortion and the men that support it, we've got to be honest. That, that if a woman, a Christian woman, wakes up Sunday morning and takes a pregnancy test and it's blue and it's positive, it's not good news, exactly who is she going to talk to in your church? See, we know it's nine days from the time that a woman confirms her pregnancy till she schedules and sometimes has her abortion. Nine days, only one Sunday in there. So she has to know when she sees that test that your church, that we as a Christian community are not going to try to stone her with condemnation. We, she has to know that we're not going to try to treat her the way that the Pharisees tried to treat the woman caught in adultery. We, she has to know that we're going to treat her the way that Christ did. Neither I condemn you. But go and sin no more. She has to know that right then. Because you can't stone the woman without stoning the baby. She has to know that. So in your church, who she's supposed to talk to? Because she needs to know right now who she's supposed to talk to. And what God put on our heart was that there really is not a ministry on-ramp in most churches for folks who are facing a pregnancy decision. And you know, for me, this is really a clear thing. You know, we, we talk about James 1.27, religion that is pure and faultless in God's sight, that we care for the orphans and widows in their distress. But you know, when this was written, what was an orphan? It was a child without a father. And what was a widow? It was typically a mother without a husband. So what that told me was two things. One, anybody here concerned with religion that is pure and faultless in God's sight? Hey, come on, brother. Come on, brother. 
Come Seems on. like that's kind of an easy one. Well, that means we need to care for orphans and widows. Now, what we have now is instead of that husband and father being dead, it's the husband and father saying to the mother and the child, you're dead to me. And pregnancy centers have these cultural orphans and widows. They have these cultural orphans and widows. And, the, and we, as the community of Christ, have to reach out to those cultural orphans and widows, but also there's a transforming, amazing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that can help that father have a Lazarus moment and bring that culturally dead father back to life. That's the call. That's why you have to lead. You're the keeper of this narrative. You have to tell the people. Some of y'all probably been to a wedding. I imagine. I don't even claim that spouse, right? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You know, and, and I really got this the first time I, 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 Dr. Evans spoke at our conference. This notion about the bride of Christ. Like, if you're if you're at a wedding, and the bride is not there. She's not coming up to the altar. Sister's hitting it on the keyboard. Bam. She's not coming down the aisle. You just keep up. Not coming down the aisle. Do you turn to the maid of honor and say, listen, you just need to step in so we keep this thing moving. <laughs> the chicken's getting cold. You need to step in so we can get, keep this thing moving. We don't do that. What do we do? You go and check on the bride. You may have left her shoes in the car, ripped her dress. You go and check on the bride. See, the church is the bride of Christ. Ain't no wedding without the church. Come on, The church is the bride of Christ. I'm in the wedding party, me. I'm maybe in, I don't know where I sit, but I'm not the bride. The church is the bride, which means the church has to be the keeper of this. And, and one of the things that Dr. Evans said that really sort of inspired me, when I started to think about this and how we weren't going to have transformation on this issue, he said, when the church fails to act in concert with God's prescribed agenda, God often chooses to postpone his active involvement until his people are prepared to respond. Wow. See, we say we're waiting on God. God is waiting on us. God is waiting on us, on the bride of Christ, to do what the bride is called to do. Now, I love to tell folks in the pregnancy centers, amazing work that pregnancy centers do, right? We're, we're life support. <coughs> life decisions need life support. We're like this little speedboat. You know, somebody's in need. We get out there, love her up, dry her off, love them up, dry them off, put them on the boat. It's great. Oh, there's another one. Love them up, dry them off, put them on the boat. After a while, when you got a small boat, what happens? Got too many people on the boat. You look around and say, who can swim? And you put folk back in the water. Do you, are you surprised that you have to pick them up again? I call it the 1818 rule. We'll see her in 18 months with a different guy in a new crisis, or we'll see her daughter in 18 years with a pregnancy or someone that her son got pregnant. See, the problem is the small boat needs to be connected to the big boat. And the big boat is the SS Compassion. It's the church. See, the small boat's supposed to connect to the big boat and take the boat off the small boat and put them on the big boat. Because you notice the big boat has more life support rings. Everybody sitting in your church is sitting there with a life support ring right there. A different set of skills, different ways that they can help, different ways that they can meet someone at their point of need. Everyone is sitting there with life support. And, but we need to get the, the folk from the small boat to the big boat, which means there are two things, which means there are two things that have to happen. One is retrieving and the other is receiving. And you see that in the narrative of Christ, right? Christ, some folk he retrieved. And it was mostly men. He, he, you, 
follow me. Come down out of the tree. We're going to do a power lunch. Right? But the women, what did he do? He just received them. The woman with the issue of blood. The woman at the well. You, you understand what I'm saying? So the ministry around this issue has to be both retrieving and receiving, which means the church has to be doing both of those if we're going to do what Christ has called us to do. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, Karen had developed this Making Life Disciples resource. Because it's to put a pregnancy care ministry, not a pregnancy center, but the ministry component into the church. Why do we need to do that? One is it's so that there's an on-ramp for folks who are facing pregnancy decisions. So that Planned Parenthood never looks like a compassionate alternative. And also to transition, to make sure there's a transition so clients move from pregnancy centers and other places and the community into the church for ongoing support and discipleship. And also so we, we can increase the pro-life IQ of folks in the church. You know, I was in Borney, uh, Borney Texas. I hope they said that right, Borney, Texas. Borney, Texas, there you go. Sorry about that. A, a few months ago when I was speaking, and I asked a question. I was talking to a group of pastors, and I asked a question. I said, how many of you feel called to be pastors because you wanted to overturn Roe v. Wade? Wow. Nobody raised their hand. I said, how many of you felt called to be pastors because you wanted to end abortion in your lifetime? Nobody raised their hand. I said, how many felt called to be pastors because you wanted to preach, you felt compelled to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make disciples of Jesus Christ? Everybody raised their hand. You ain't worth your MDF if you ain't got that. And I said, therein lies the issue. See, see, pastors have to help folks see that this issue is a discipleship issue. It's a discipleship issue. Water for the thirsty, clothes for the naked, right? Almost a healing for the sick. We understand all those things as equaling discipleship, which is the Great Commission. But on this issue, for some reason, we don't see compassion for the pregnant as a discipleship issue. And I would say to you that if we're going to move from Sanctity of Life Sunday to Sanctity of Life every day, hmm. that is what has to happen. In order to move from inspiration to action, we have to view this as a discipleship issue because it is a discipleship issue. The truth is, this isn't extra work. This actually is the work. Think about it. Every good work that Christians do, our call to be the hands and feet of Jesus is a discipleship issue. Every good work that we do because we're called to live out the Great Commission. We're, we're called to do that. And, and, and I'm just going to close here with this. See, this is especially true for the life issue. Because our faith in Christ is what? The nativity narrative. It actually starts with an unplanned pregnancy. It starts with an unplanned pregnancy. An unexpected baby, but to what end? So that we might have abundant life. Right? God used an unplanned pregnancy. Created a family to what end? So that we might have abundant life. Now I urge you not to miss this point. Because could it be that God is using the unplanned pregnancy of a couple in your community, in the pregnancy center, in the church, in your pews, wherever, as an on-ramp for them to become disciples of Jesus Christ? Could it be? Could it be? But for this to happen, pastors, you've you got to lead. You've got to equip your congregation to be disciple makers and to view this issue not as a political issue, Although it has political components. 
not as a cultural, but as a discipleship issue and a discipleship opportunity. And when you do that, the issue becomes firmly embedded in your church as ministry. And that, and that will give us the transformation that we need. Amen? Amen. 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 I'm going to close there. Again, I'm going to thank you for coming. I wanted to say one last thing. Pastor uh, uh, Greg Austin is here, who, who's on CareNet's staff. He's our executive director of, of uh, church outreach and engagement. He's the keeper of the Making Life Disciples ministry. See, there's my beeper. See that? Right on time. Um, keeper of, of the ministry. I encourage you and urge you to get information from us. We, we want to make Dallas a place where churches and pregnancy centers are doing what needs to, to be done. And that this be a model for other folks across the country to see. And we're just delighted uh, to be here and to be uh, with you today. Thank you very much. Take care.